All right, okay, if you've got a Bible, can you turn to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians? We've been going through Ephesians for a number of months now. Um, we're going to continue it um, this week and next week. I'll be on next week pushing us forward. Um, we're into chapter 4. Uh, now, just also as an aside, we are only in here for one more week next week and then we go back to the main hall, so a little bit more space um, for us. The exam season will have finished and we get to go back there. Now, if you've been following us through Ephesians, if you've missed any of the sermons, they're all available on our website. You can go and have a listen to them and download them. The first three chapters of Ephesians are very much doctrinal um, issues Paul, the Apostle Paul's dealt with, um, big overarching themes of God's plan in salvation from eternity to eternity, a mystery that has been made known that God's plan is to pull the Jew and the Gentile together into one new man under him, that Christ's reconciling death has, has reconciled man to God, but also man to one another, and he's formed this new community into the church, which is his plan for the nations of this world and will ultimately one day be with him forever when he sums everything up in Christ. So the first three chapters are kind of this, these overarching mega-themes, meta-narrative of the Bible that we've looked at and grappled with. But when you hit chapters 4, 5 and 6, it suddenly comes down-to-earth reality and the practicalities of how you work that out. And we started last week, the beginning of chapter 4, looking at um, Paul's plea for unity. We are unified in Christ as Christians because we've all been saved into Christ. But then Paul says, would you work at that? In fact, he pleads them and urges them that you have to work at the unity that Christ has achieved. Because although we have the, the same spirit and there's one faith and one baptism, all those ones he talked about that bring us together, we then have to work at getting on with each other. And we have to actually you know, make effort in that part and Paul so it begins with that sort of plea to unity. And the summary of this sort of section was that first verse in chapter 4 when it says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So it's, in a sense, Paul is saying, you've been saved into these wonderful things of God. Jesus does incredible things in your life. Please now walk in a manner that's worthy of that. Act like you've been saved. Act like you're a Christian. Act like that you've been forgiven and redeemed and you've been adopted and saved. Lord, act like that. Um, and he pleaded for unity. And then the section we're going on to now, we're going to start at verse 7. Um, we're going to do about uh, 10 or so um, verses. To be honest, I'll just be up front here. I was, when I was preparing this and looking at this, it kind of goes a little bit all over the place, this passage. And there's some hard bits to kind of grapple with. And so as I've been putting it together, I've, it's made me scratch my head about where's Paul going with some of this stuff. And I find this quite encouraging because when you preach through the Bible and you preach through a book in its entirety, you can't miss stuff out. Because I read it and thought, yeah, if I glossed over that and sort of skipped to the next bit that's a little bit clearer, that would make my life easier. But actually, that's not the way the Bible's written. There are some more tricky things that we have to get our head around. And the fact that we're to teach through the entire Bible means we can't get to miss bits out. and We can't drop the bits that we don't like and focus on the bits we do like. We've got to cover the, the whole lot in its entirety. So I'm going to read um, the passage we're going to look at today, and then we'll dive in and see if we can make sense of what Paul is uh, talking about. Okay, it starts at verse 7. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fulfill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry, for building up of the body, 
until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All right, big idea of this is that diversity in unity leads to maturity. Diversity in unity leads to maturity. And the structure of that whole beginning section of chapter 4, it begins when we looked at last week with Paul's plea for unity. Then the section we read today begins with talking about diversity in Christ, then it talks about maturity in Christ, and then finally comes back to unity in Christ. So almost in that section, Paul's gone full circle from unity to unity. Um, but in the middle, he's talked about our diversity and how we're all different, and then that should cause us to mature, and then we come back to unity at the end. So I'm going to look at three things today. I'm going to look at uh, diversity due to Christ, maturity towards Christ, and then finally unity in Christ. So number one, diversity due to Christ. The beginning of um, chapter four, it talks about, Paul just focused on unity. It talks about one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then as he moves into chapter seven, there's a but. It says, but grace was given to each one of us. Now that one, it's, it's gone from being a corporate thing to being an individual thing. And he's saying, actually, uh, one now refers to an individual. We're all a bit different. Christ has given grace to each one of us differently. There is a unity within us as a body under Jesus, but each one of us um, is different. And Paul includes himself there when he says each one of us. He's bringing himself into that. And it's according to the measure of Christ's gift to us. So the underlying thing there is all due to God's sovereign grace. It's all, it's all gifts of grace. There's nothing about earned merit, deserves, rights, all those are modern terms that we use to assert our own personal right. That has all been removed there. It's all about Christ giving to us. And we haven't earned this gift, like we saw in chapter 2. Salvation is a gift. Even the gift of faith that we use to respond to the message of Christ is a gift from God. It all comes from him. He's the beginning of all, which means there's no grounds for boasting. However God has wired you and made you and gifted you, there is no grounds for you to boast in yourself for what's happened, because it's all from him. It's all um, gifts of grace that, that Christ has given to you. It's not something of yourself that you have earned or worked out or aren't you more special. And it's also said there, it's worth saying that he's given one, it to each of us. That means that every individual in Christ has received something special from Christ. No one's missed out. No one can sit there and say, God hasn't given me anything. God hasn't gifted me in any way by his grace. They can't look at someone else and say, well, they've got this, therefore I have nothing, I'm worse off, I, I'm enough. because actually that goes against what the Bible has said, and, that, and that's really a kind of a pride issue, actually. And actually the point is, God has given to each of us um, gifts of his grace that we are to, um, to work. And no one gift is better than another, and we all have something to bring to the party which means that no matter how many you know, believers you add to a church, everyone's got something to contribute. Everyone's got a role to play, which is just a theme Paul has talked about in those first sections, about all being built up together, growing together. There's a corporateness to that. And even in our individuality, in our diversity as a group, we all have something to add and bring 
um, together. And uh, even if they're different, because Paul, remember, Paul had a specific ministry, and his ministry was to the Gentiles, he said, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, which was actually different to some of the other apostles, like Peter, who actually had a ministry to the Jews. And even though their ministries were different, they actually still, they both had equal value and equal worth before God. And he's, he's kind of putting himself in that. I'm like you. We, we all have different gifts, graces that God has given on us. And they're all equally valid and they're all equally uh, worthwhile. And they're all equally good gifts from Christ. And then he adds a picture to try and make this helpful, which is where it gets a little bit sort of, you know, I'm not sure about this bit. And it, he, he quotes Psalm 68. And that's that quote there that in my Bible is kind of separated out. He's quoting a psalm. And it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. But then he goes on a little bit in brackets. In saying he ascended, he kind of extrapolates on that. It does not also mean, uh, doesn't also mean he descended into the lower regions of the earth. Huh? He also descended as the one who ascended far above all the heavens that it might fulfill all things. All right. The point, let's work out what this means. The picture in the psalm, uh, from Psalm 68, is a picture of a king triumphantly climbing Mount Zion in Jerusalem and as a result giving gifts because he is an all-conquering king. That's the image from the psalm. Paul is taking that image and he is applying it to Christ and saying actually like that image from the psalm with the king going up the hill in Jerusalem is similar to what Christ did in, in his, um, when he descended and ascended and did the same thing. Now the psalm is actually then referring back to something in... Um, uh, back in the book of Numbers, where it talks about God taking the, the priest, the, the Levites, to himself um, as an inheritance. Now, the 12 tribes of Israel, when they came into the promised land, every tribe was apportioned a part of the land. When they'd taken it, they all got given a bit. And you read that in the book of Joshua. They take the land, and every tribe, Reuben, Simeon, um, and Asher, and Gad, and all, they all got their bits, okay, except the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi, their inheritance was the Lord. That's what he said. He says, you don't get any land, you get me. Which, when you think about it, is actually probably the best deal, isn't it? You, know, you get a land or you get God. So the Levites get God, but then God gave them back to the people to serve and minister and to be the ones who minister to the people and minister to him. They became that kind of, they almost, they prefigured Christ in that. And actually they would serve the temple, the tabernacle, and they would be that people. And in Numbers 18.6, it says, And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service in the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle at the time, which pre kind of came before the temple in Jerusalem. So, the, the image is, God is saying, okay, when God took the Levites, he gave them back as gifts to the people um, to serve them. To serve them. And he's saying now, okay, about Jesus. Jesus this, the descending part refers to Jesus coming to earth. The descent is uh, talking about him it, descent in, into humility. Think about Christ. He is pre-existence. He created the world. He holds it together. The world was created through him. Then you get the incarnation in Bethlehem. He becomes a baby. So you have the pre-existent Christ ruling and reigning with the Trinity and then he becomes a baby. He then is, so he's confined, if you will, by human skin. He grows and has to learn kind of about growing as a child into manhood. He's limited in his kind of ministry into you know, Israel, that area where he preaches. And then he is betrayed, he is killed, 
and he dies the most horrific, horrible death on the cross in our place for our sins. So there is a descent in humility. What he's saying is Christ descended in that way, and that's kind of summed up in the bit in uh, Philippians, where it says he did not account quality of God something to be grasped, but made himself lower, you know, made himself a servant, and eventually he suffered death on the cross. So he's saying Christ descended to that, but he also then ascended in exaltation when he rose from death. He rose from death in a glorified body and the disciples saw him and he was just he was the same but he was different and then he rose into heaven and the Bible says he now rules and reigns in authority and splendor. So Christ is this exalted king who has risen um, like the king from Psalm um, 68 and he has now given gifts to men. He has given gifts to men. Just like the Levites were taken by God and then given gifts to men Christ is now doing that. And at the end of that section there, it talks about him, he ascended far above all the heavens that might, he might fulfill all, thi- all things. And Paul is just going back to a theme he's gone through all through Ephesians. And that is that Jesus is ruling and reigning over absolutely everything. All dominions, all powers, all authorities. Nothing is outside of his sovereign control. He is the Lord. He is in charge. He's the king on his throne. There is no one else above him. In fact, everyone else is far below him. And he is the one ruling and reigning. And Paul is underlying that, that these gifts that come from God come from the exalted Christ, from the seat of heaven itself. And so they are, they are the best they can be and they are coming from the king who is in control of everything. And uh, Jesus is, um, is our model um, for this in terms of how we look at it. He's fulfilling all things. And the point, I, kind of, I think what Paul was getting to, is ultimately we deserve nothing. Everything comes from Jesus. We rejoice in what we've received in gifts and also we rejoice in what others have received because they all come from the ascended Christ. Which means that I'm, as I grow through life, I become more aware of what I can do but I also become more aware of what I can't do. You have these, as you grow, you have these crushing realisations that some things you're not actually just that, that good at. And you just have to come to terms with that. And I've done that over 30 plus years of my life and there are certain things in my life that I'm just not very good at. And I just have to come to that. I cannot play a musical instrument. This area of church is one that really is not for me. And it's kind of off limits to me. And it's something that I have had to come to terms with over the years. And I'm also not a very good singer. So the whole area of musicality and playing musical instruments is just not something that I am good at. And that's just, that's fine. I suppose if I really did an up or down and learn, I might be able to string some chords together. But do you know what? It's just not my bag and I've got no passion for it either. And so, but that's okay because I'm different. I have other skills and other, other sort of ways. And, and I can respond in two ways. I can look at the musicians and singers who serve us and people I see around. And I can either, either rejoice in their gift or I can be jealous of it because I don't have it in the same way. Or God isn't using me in the same way. And our response should be the rejoicing side because it's based on God's grace and God has chosen to do that in his sovereign will and the fact that he loves us and he's given good gifts to us and what he's given to them is different to what he's given to me or any one of us. And so we can choose to rejoice in what God has done in people or we can choose to be jealous of it. And if we are jealous of it, all that shows is our lack of understanding and almost a hardness of heart and actually understanding that God is good and gives, gives gifts to us as well. Because the irony is people might be looking at you and thinking, actually, I like what they do. <laughs> I can only play a guitar, but look what you can do, kind of thing. And it, it kind of goes both ways, because we're sort of riddled with insecurities. But actually, we find our, only find our security in Christ. And so when we look at how God's gifted us, what we can do, 
uh, the work we are, the things we, the gifts we have, the stage of life we're in. It's actually, it all comes down to gifts of God and what he has given to us. And we are to rejoice in that and actually not see that as an opportunity to be jealous or resentful of what God has given others and in their situations um, because ultimately that's not the way God has designed it. And we move on there in this diversity, saying we're all different, but Paul chooses to focus on leadership, those who kind of God puts in authority over his church. He, he is, Christ is ruling and reigning, and he wants, he's filling all things, and the way he's going to do that is he's distributing gifts to his church sovereignly, um, and he, he focuses on leadership, which is unusual, because when he, um, if you read Corinthians, he talks about gifts God gives, the gifts of the Spirit, often referred to, and they are often things kind of, he's actually talking about gifts, but in this situation, he's actually talking about people. He's actually talking about roles people serve, but in some of the Corinthians ones and the Romans list, they're actually talking about gifts that are distributed, and the focus is on the gift, but here the focus is on the people that God gives, and the point is, God gives people to the church as gifts. Sometimes he gives gifts of prophecy and healing and words of knowledge, but sometimes he actually gives individuals who are gifts to the church, and he focuses on here on these gifts of leadership. He talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, um, shepherds or pastors, some translations, and teachers. And depending on which books you read, there are either four there or five there. And sometimes people say there are four because the pastor and the teacher, because of the way it's written in Greek, could actually be the same or they're so closely connected. Um, so when the, depending on which way you go, but I'm not going to make an argument out of that, but the five are listed, and whether the last two are the same um, isn't, isn't what we're going to be dealing with today. And so he, he talks about these gifts, um, and I just quickly go through them. The first one, the apostle. Uh, Paul's already mentioned that um, twice in the letter so far. The gift of the apostle, we have the twelve apostles that Jesus appointed. Judas killed himself, they brought Matthias in to replace him. There are others named as apostles in the Bible. There's obviously Paul, Barnabas, James... And I think even a couple of others are named in the Bible. And from the point of view, just so we're aware, as a gift that God has given to the church, we believe as a church here, this gift is still in effect today. The apostolic gift. We don't believe that we can replace the 12 apostles or anyone is on a par with the 12 apostles or Paul. You know, they, they walked with, the, with Christ. They saw the risen Christ. Some of them wrote what we're reading here today. And we don't believe anyone is on that par um, today at all. But we believe the gift is very much in effect today. The gift of the apostle to break new ground, uh, to plant churches, to lay foundations, to preach, um, see the miraculous happen. We believe that that gift is very much in, in existence today. And our being here as a church is actually I put down to that gift being working, that gift being outworked. Uh, we are part of a family of churches at the moment called New Frontiers, uh, up till very, very recently, led by a man named Terry Virgo for the last 30 years. He functions with an apostolic gift that has been multiplied throughout the earth um, in planting churches and growing us as a sphere of churches. And we don't revere him above anyone else, but we recognise his gift that has enabled many, you know, a couple of hundred churches, churches we planted in this country, five, six hundred more around the world. And so that we are very much recipients of that um, um, and we believe that that gift will be multiplied more and more in the earth today to plant churches and see them established. It's the gift of the prophet, again also mentioned twice so far in Ephesians. We find this throughout um, the, the book of Acts. It says in the church in Antioch they had teachers and prophets in their leadership and it lists a bunch of leaders um, in the church there. It talks about um, there was Judas and Silas in Acts 15 who were prophets and there was a prophet Agabus in Acts um, 21. Um, it's also as a gift mentioned in Corinthians three times, chapter 12, 13, and 14, 
there and we believe it is a gift and an office that is at work today. Uh, Paul even says in the church in Corinth, I desire eagerly that you all prophesy. If Paul had a number one gift, it was the gift of prophecy to encourage and build up the church um, uh, today. And uh, the gift of the prophet is to speak God's word into a given situation. It's always to build up and encourage even if it's done sometimes in a more kind of confrontational way, the ultimate goal is to build up and encourage, not to crush um, and destroy. And it's worth saying we don't believe uh, prophets are on um, a par with those who we are named in our Bible as the prophetic, the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. Um, it's not the same way, but we believe the gift um, is in action. As God speaks to his um, church, the gift will be in action later as we worship where people speak and people just speak out. This is what we believe God is saying. We weigh it together. We don't take it as gospel. Everything sits under the authority of scripture. We weigh it. But um, I know from my life I have been hugely affected by prophetic words that people have spoken to me in different situations where they've never met me and it has shaped the fact that we're here today um, at this church. So it's a gift that we love and we honour under uh, the authority of scripture and the leadership in the local church, you would weigh it as we weigh that kind of together. But we believe that gift. So there is the um, prophets and then we have the evangelist. Philip, one of the seven in, from Acts 6, is called an evangelist in Acts 21. Um, the Apostle John, who wrote the, um, the Gospel of John, is often referred to as John the Evangelist. Um, uh, in 2 Timothy 4, it talks about, Paul talks to Timothy, he says, do the work of an evangelist. I think by implication he was saying, Timothy, you're not an evangelist, but actually, so there would be others who are evangelists, but he's saying, do it anyway, do that work. And the evangelist is the one who is engaged in preaching the gospel and seeing men and women added to uh, the church, whether that be on a kind of a smaller level or vast kind of preaching to crowds. And there have been men and women down the centuries who have preached to vast crowds in stadiums um, with an evangelistic gift and seen many come and add it into the church. And the last one there, the pastor, the shepherd and the teacher, they're very closely linked. Um, that the, this Bible says actually it's the translation is shepherd, but pastor is what it is. And that, they just mean the same thing, pastor, shepherd. Um, they're also interchangeable with elder, overseer. You find that throughout the Old Testament, that term. And they're just, they are the ones who care and lead God's flock. What we have in our movement of churches is we will, have, we will eventually appoint elders um, we believe who govern and lead the church and they are just the shepherds, the pastors of the church who, will, who are basically to care for the flock of the church. So that's what the pastor uh, does. And very, link, very closely linked with that is the teacher, one who, who teaches, expounds the Bible, applies scripture to our life. I mean, actually, see, it's, the, one of the reasons they're linked is because it's a qualification for eldership, actually, to be able to teach. So that's one of the reasons you find them so linked together that actually an elder needs to be someone who's able to teach. So a pastor, a shepherd, should be able to do that, teach the flock. And it's not just imparting information teaching, it's actually transforming lives, applying it to lives in a way that the church grows and is built up um, as, a, as a people you actually understand, you take on. You're not just you, you gain facts and information, but there's some deep work done in your life and that you grow, uh, you grow up in Christ. And the point of all that, I think, of that kind of section is that we are to celebrate diversity amongst us. Paul has already talked about in the letter of the, the greatest diversity, which was Jew and Gentile, which was, which was an ethnic, religious, social diversity that is, was vast between a Jew and a non-Jew, a Gentile. And he said, actually, in Christ, they've been brought together. So that biggest barrier has been broken down. One new man 
And uh, we are to celebrate that and enjoy that. But in the same way that we've been individually gifted, we are to celebrate that diversity and enjoy the fact that people are different. You know, in some ways, I would, it would be easier if people were like me because they'd understand me. But actually, can you imagine how vanilla and boring that would be if we were literally all the same? I mean, I, you know, one of my prayers when I came here was, God, you know, save me from a church that looks like me. Do you know what I mean? If we all look like me, you know, we'd all have the same strengths. So we would no one be able to pl- sing and play. You know, it'd be, our worship times would be utterly horrific because everyone would be standing looking at the guitar and we're like, what do, we, what do we do with that? You know, I just. So we want to celebrate our diversity and enjoy it and and kind of you know encourage one another in what God has given them the strengths of that. So there's um, diversity in Christ. Number two, maturity towards Christ. As we move on. So he's given these gifts to the church, and he particularly focuses on the leadership there of the church, those who kind of given over to, 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 to taking the church forward. But what's the purpose of that? And actually, in the same way, what's the purpose of us all having these kind of gifts and all having these differences? You know, we can all be different, but, but why? Why would God do that? And it says uh, it's to bring us towards maturity, because it says to, you know, he gave these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. And so, he's now gone from this sort of the diversity element, which means you're all individuals, but he's suddenly immediately brought it back to a unity. He talks about saints, plural, body, that's all of us, we, and unity. They're the words he's suddenly strung in there. So, we talked about unity right at the beginning of chapter 4. He's then saying, actually, you're all very different, but we're all to be together, and the role of these leaderships is to equip us for the works of ministry. And that word equip can mean repairing, preparing, completing training, uh, disciplining. You're making something sufficient and adequate for the task. So in essence, what the, what the leaders are to do the saint, uh, to the saints, the saints are the believers, part of the church, the leaders are to equip them, prepare them to do the job, to do the stuff. That is the role of the leadership. That's my role as a leader here, is to prepare you to do the stuff. My role isn't necessarily to do the stuff which is good, isn't it? I get help. We go forward together and the role of leadership and of us one another is to prepare us for these works of service that we do it to enable one another which can cut against um, the traditional kind of view of church that I grew up in where you had the clergy who was the guy kind of at the front in the dress, you know, and he did all the work and everyone sat back and let him. And it, you know, it wasn't very encouraging for him, I imagine. He had to do it all. But that was kind of the sphere I got in. And I started, you know, I started reading my Bible, coming across different ways of doing it. Actually, no, we're all meant to do it. We have different roles within the church, but we're all meant to get involved into the work of ministry. And it's summed up really nicely in this verse. 2, 2, Tim- 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Paul says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And what you've got four layers there, of passing on and training. You've got Paul to Timothy, to worthy men, to others. And there's that sense of actually training and pushing it on. Paul's saying, what I've learned, I'm telling you, you tell others, you'll then tell others. And that training and that completing and that repairing or moving on. So there is a quipping work as those leaders. They are meant to be giving tools, so to speak, to the church so that you can go and do the stuff. And because you spend most of your life not in church... We shouldn't be training you for church. We should be training you for what you do out there, to be mothers and fathers and employers and employees and friends and neighbours, co-workers, colleagues, all those things. These, these truths should be helping you do that job because that's where you spend most of your time. 
you spend most of your week. You don't spend it here. This is just a one small portion of what you do. And we are um, to train you for that, but also we're to build up the body, build up one another in Christ. We should be, uh, Paul's used the imagery of building and growing lots for it, but this, this should be a building up of the church. As we discover what we're good at, as we employ it, to serve God, there is a building up of it. And this can be in two ways. It can be extensive and intensive. Extensive meaning that people are added. As you're equipped to do the works of service, men and women are added to the church. Men and women become Christians, they meet Jesus, they come and they are added to the church um, here locally, universal, wherever it is. But they are added to um, an expression of church somewhere and the church grows numerically. Anything living grows. It just does. I've got two of them at home, okay? And they are just growing. Growing out of clothes, they're just growing, growing, because they're alive, they're active. If they weren't growing, there would be problems. You know, we have to take... Um, Asher is, is, is the youngest. He has to go and get weighed and measured every so often, and they track his growth. And if it, if it deviates off it, they're concerned. If it's a nice, sort of nice tr- smooth trajectory, they're happy, because he's growing, he's healthy. And so we are to grow, and we are to grow um, extensively, as in numerically, people becoming Christians, but at the same time, we are to grow intensively, which is in our own depth and maturity in Christ. So we are to grow ourselves deeper in our understanding of the Bible, of Jesus, of prayer, of the ways of God, of knowing how to communicate our faith, all these things, discovering our gifts, hearing what God's called and what he's pushing us on to next. And we should do that. And it's, I think it's a, a wonderful exercise to review your life, say, for the last year, and think about, this is where I was a year ago, this is where I am now, how has God grown me in that time? Because one, it should be encouraging, because you think, wow, look at that, look at that, look at that. God has taken me here, God has done this. Because if I did this for like maybe two or three years ago, I wasn't even living here. This church didn't exist. So how has God changed me in that time? I can look at some very practical examples of it, and I can review areas of my life. If you ever find an area of your life where you think, not much has happened there, then actually that's something maybe you need to focus on and actually I'll pray into that, I'll look into that. But actually God should be growing us as individuals, growing in what what he's called us to do, doing things we've maybe never done before. And so the the, the role of this leadership is to build up the church and see it grow, equip and train. And there's, um, Paul goes on in verse 13, as he's saying, uh, to equip the saints for works of ministry, the building up the body. Okay, verse 13, until we attain to the unity of faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? That's where we're going. Now, what, what we've got here, I read that and thought, really? That's their role? That's my role? I've got to do that? That sounds like quite a high thing. But what we've got here is this tension between the now and not yet of God's kingdom. God's kingdom has come. Jesus proclaimed that. He said, the kingdom of God is here. And he demonstrated it with the preaching of the gospel and the the, the healing of the sick and the setting free of the captives and the blind receiving their sight. So it was very clear God's kingdom came. He rose from death and he broke the power of sin and death in that way. But at the same time, God's kingdom kind of is not here in its fullness because we look around at our world now and we still see sin and suffering and death and pain and all the things that, that, that are not of God and not what he would have in his kingdom. So we live in this tension, and that will only one day be fully wound up when Christ comes again and all things are made new. And so we live in this sort of, the overlapping of the, the kind of the old way and the kingdom to come. And there's a breaking in 
and one day it will be consummated and we will see, see God face to face and there will be no more pain and no more suffering and no more crying and, and all things will be made new and that's wonderful and that is kind of what Paul is uh, referring to there he is saying that we are to equip and to build towards something that is in the future and we will not achieve it but we are going to go for it knowing that one day we will achieve it in, in its fullness. So we are worked towards um, that unity of faith. There is a unity of the faith because we are all Christians, because God has saved us into Christ. We are all one. He said that. But at the same time, he said, work at it. Work at the unity of the faith. There's a knowledge of the Son of God. We have that knowledge because we've been saved, Ephesians said. It says, the mystery has been revealed. It's been made known. To, to the principalities and powers have seen this mystery of what, what God wants to do in Christ with his death to sum all things up. But at the same time, we don't see it fully. We are prone to doubt. We can even expand our own knowledge of the word of God and understanding. You know, none of us have a full grasp on what God's saying. His eternal will. We're going to spend eternity plumbing the depths of it. But at the same time, we can grow now. And he's saying you are to push forward into that and to become the mature man. Now, I know all the men in the room are thinking, we're there. We are mature men in Christ. Hands up, guys. Mature men. No, no, come on, don't leave me hanging here. Oh, I'm the only one. But we are, to, we are to be grown up, not to be infants. And this obviously applies to the ladies as well. I'll just be having a bit of fun there. But the, when you see the children amongst us, they're fantastic. But the expectation is that they are to grow. And as they grow, they are to mature. They are to learn ways. And um, we had an incident with our, our eldest a while back. And you know, we, Mel and I were talking about how do we handle this, how do we handle this. And Mel just made a comment. He said, we've got to handle him, we've got to help him. But at the end of the day, he's two. You expect him to act that way. If you're 22 and you act that way, there is a problem and you need to mature. Do you know? For a two-year-old, you have certain expectations and they're down here. But when you have 22-year-olds your expectations rise because they should have matured in their understanding um, of life and, and how things work. And in the same way, we are to mature. If you've been a Christian for many years, that doesn't necessarily make you mature. Maturing is in growing in knowledge and understanding of God, knowing in his ways, of following him, of, of going deeper with him, of taking on responsibility in him. And we are to, to measure our maturity of how people know Christ, how they imitate Christ in their life, um, how, they, how they appreciate Christ and their love and their affection for what he's done. Uh, but that is what we are to aim for, knowing that we cannot ever fully reach it, but we do know we can grow in it. And Paul's making that clear. You can't get there, but you can grow and you can mature um, as believers as we, as we move forward. He then adds a kind of a negative construct about the presence. There's a positive about one day, this is going to be what it's going to be like, you're going to get there. But then he, he mentions the presence, uh, verse 14, the presence, sorry, so that we may no longer be children. Again, there's the, there's the contrast between mature adult and a child. He doesn't want you to be like children. Children are great, but they don't stay there very, that way for long. They grow into adults, so don't be children. He says, the children are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human crumbing and craftiness and deceitful schemes. And what he's, he's saying is he's, He's talking about uh, using the negative contrast with what's going to be in the future, about what's it like now. And he uses the image of children. Children are unstable, they lack direction, they are open to manipulation, which as a parent is good sometimes, 
because you can get the child to do what you want just by kind of just moving things around a little bit. That helps you kind of maintain a bit of a sense of control um, when they're running around. They are like, they're like small boats. The image is a small boat, a rudderless boat, that when the wind and the waves come, it has no choice but to go everywhere. Just get tossed around. Other than like big ships with sails and rudders that can, can go against the wind and they can plot their direction. Small boats are just thrown around. And the, what they're being thrown around is, is false teaching which is outside of the gospel that Paul has been proclaiming. He's saying, this is the truth. That's why he's taking three chapters to lay it down. This is it. And he says, if anything outside of that is false, and there will be those who try to bring that in and throw you around, and if you are immature, like a child, you'll just be tossed through in there. The next thing that comes along, you'll have no kind of no, no foundation, no root, no rudder, no sail in the wind to protect yourself um, from false teaching. And there are those who come and they are cunning and they are crafty and they have deceitful schemes. And so there is the willful kind of human element there, an evil human element, to try and pervert the gospel, dilute the gospel, take people away. Um, and there are no specifics given. Paul doesn't particularly focus on anything. But there are those, there are things that were around at the time that have a, 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 a application for today. One of them was Gnosticism, which was the idea of there being like hidden knowledge, extra knowledge, but only for the initiated, which of course flies in the face of what Paul has just said about this mystery that is made known to everyone. He said the mystery has been revealed. You know, it was hidden in ages past, that kind of, the, the, the Messiah coming and how it come, but now in Christ it has been made known and we can proclaim that message. And so there's no mystery there. So that comes against it. And there was the, the in Ephesus there was the cult of the goddess Diana or Artemis uh, at the time, and the knowledge and getting involved in that and he was saying, no, actually this mystery is, is plain and simple and clear and this is the message we're to proclaim and we have kind of modern equivalent of cults that have gone down all sorts of, of lines of hidden knowledge. When you get initiated, you get told um, this knowledge um, and uh, you know all these kind of things. That it, the, the cult is so prevalent on telly and in books. You just have to look at the bookstores, what's the popular books, particularly in the teenage section, which is frightening. They're going after, you know, you know the kids being tossed to and fro? If you look at the teenage section in the bookstore, that's where all this junk is. Getting the kids. Um, it's there, it's on the television, and so there is this kind of other knowledge that is added to the gospel. There's syncretism, which is the idea of adding things from different religious faiths, the kind of the religious pick and mix. I'll take a bit of this, a bit of that, and I'll make my own faith that suits me. And so there are, you know, there are parts in the gospel where they have the, the Christian faith and they want to add other bits and pieces to it, Newman's festivals to the Christian faith to make it kind of more acceptable. We have the modern thinking of all paths lead to Jesus, all paths lead to God, all, path, all religions are different paths up the same mountain and they all get to the top. I mean that's fundamentally dumb because so many religions are mutually exclusive. You know, how can they all be going to the same place when they, you know, one God, many gods, no God? you know, they're not even the same on the most fundamental level, so how they can all be going up the same mountain is beyond me. But you see people who know that I have a bit of karma and I have a bit of kind of, you know, agnosticism, is there any God? And then I add in a little bit of moralism because we should be good people. And you mix it around and there may be a kind of afterlife if you're good and you suddenly get some kind of hodgepodge of rubbish that isn't really anything. Um... And that's what we kind of fight against today. No, there is one God. His name is Jesus. <laughs> and there is only one way to God um, through him and him alone. Um, and there are you know, doctrines like that we should hold to. The death uh, of resurrection, the authority of Scripture, the sovereignty of God, the Trinity, 
all these things are, are things we don't add and we don't bend on at all. And, so, and then you get things like legalism. There's another one. Paul had to deal with that a lot in letters. You know, in one point he took he had to go against the apostle Peter because Peter had given into legalism. He had to face him down in Galatians because he was wrong. And legalism is just adding stuff to the gospel to basically say Jesus plus something is actually what equals salvation, not just Jesus alone. Jesus plus. Um, it was circumcision then. Uh, we don't seem to have that one now, but we can have Jesus plus how you dress. You know, what kind of music you have in church, what instruments you have in church, what songs you sing, what translation of the Bible you use. You know, all these kind of things can come in. And we sometimes think that we're kind of new, trendy church. You know, we don't have those things because we're too new, but we've got them. We've got them ourselves. You know, imagine, you know, we're all kind of fairly informally dressed. What would happen if the guy in the suit came in? And it would almost be the reverse. It would be like, oh, weird. You need, to be, you need to be underdressed to be here, not overdressed, rather than us going underdressed into a place where they're all wearing suits. You know, so we're just as guilty as anyone else. Imagine if uh, we had worship this week and we rolled in the organ. So we're not having a guitar this week. We're going to do it on the organ. Yeah, Matt and Phil are over there slightly panicking. I'd like that next week just to protect us from legalism, the organ, so that we can actually worship God. It's not dependent on a particular type of instrument or a style of instrument or a particular song or group of songs or you know, songwriter we like. But all these things are stuff that can come around. And behind them are deceitful men, um, cunning men. Um, the word they're cunning is used actually in craftiness. It's used five times in the New Testament. Everyone is bad. <laughs> how it's used, so there's nothing good. And they try and control people, but ultimately behind that is, of course, the ultimate enemy, the evil one, who is trying to destroy the church and destroy you and destroy the gospel and what Christ has done and, and do as much damage as he can. And so to combat this for us, to, to, to not be small rudderless boats on the sea, children immature, tossed around, we need to create lifestyles for ourselves that are lifestyles of prayer and, and study of the Bible. How else are you going to mature in the things of God to, to combat false teaching? You need to know true teaching. That's the way you do it. I heard a story about how they train um, people in banks and people who work with money to find counterfeits. And what they don't do is teach them about counterfeiting techniques or you know, how they pass off fake money. They, they teach them about the genuine article. So they're so familiar with the genuine article that when anything false comes along, they, just, they, they find it like that because that's wrong. It's, that's not the genuine. And as Christians, we, we shouldn't be so fussed with what the false teaching. We should be so clued up on what is genuine, what is the true teaching of the Bible, that when anything false comes, immediately you're like, whoa, that's rubbish, because it, it doesn't line up with the true, the genuine. And so the only way we can do that is as individuals lead, lead lives of Bible study and prayer, regular Bible reading, prayer, humility. What is this saying? How does it affect my life? Repentance of sin. Um, we also then need to be in a good church that teaches the Bible and they have leaders that are under the authority of the Bible and proclaim it and there is humility and prayer there so it's not just me as an individual I'm now part of a, a group of individuals and then I'm, so I'm in a good church that's proclaiming that but then I'm also part of the community of that church and every church I kind of know of in this country has some kind of small group system structure where you can get in with people on a more personal level than rather an impersonal sort of Sunday morning level. And so it's, it's a personal aspect, being part of a good church, but actually being in that church in a relationship with others so you can be rubbed up you know, and actually have your, what you've been learning put into practice with real people. 
and you, you get to clash up with one another. And we talked about dealing with confrontation and people last week in this whole unity. But they're all linked together. That's how we avoid being these people blown around by all winds of doctrine. Okay, let's wrap it up. Last one, unity in Christ. Uh, Okay, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with, uh, from which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself together in love. Okay, here's the positive final bit. He's bringing it all together and he's talking about us growing up together with one another in love. We speak the truth, which refers to the word, that the truth being the kind of the, the gospel that whole truth that we are to speak to one another, encourage of one another, and we are to grow up in love in that way. Um, and we are to, uh, the image there is, is another image of the body. And even he, Instead of just saying the body now, he fills it out, he talks about ligaments, and um, there's something else he said there, I'm sure, but these muscles and ligaments that join everything together. And so we, it's coming back to actually we need to be part of a whole a part of a corporate body where each individual person plays their part in sticking together and us growing up in Christ. And each person bringing their distinct contribution to that body. You know, our bodies are such finely tuned machines, you can take out small pieces and they suddenly the whole doesn't work. Which is a really profound illustration for us and the church. That actually, you might think your, your contribution is small, but actually it's profound on the whole. You know, if you remove someone's eyes, they're so small, yet suddenly they're blind. And, and actually, they can, how much can you not do? You know, so some of the internal organs that you never see, I'll never see bits in the inside of my body, and I'm happy about that, actually. <laughs> Stay inside. You suddenly take something out, and it could kill you. Do you know what I mean? It, things happen, and so we've all got these parts to play as we build up the body, and there's a role of leadership in equipping and encouraging and training us to do those um, things, but it, it's all of us, ultimately, we are unified together as this body, and I hope through that you've got that idea of actually we're different by God's grace, but actually he's pulled us together as a body, and we all have a part to play in that, and we're all different shapes and sizes we all have different gifts and abilities, but we together form this beautiful thing uh, called the church. And me, I am passionate about the church, and I love the church. And when it's functioning, well, it is the most amazing thing on the planet. Um, the way it serves and loves one another and, and celebrates and points towards um, the glory that is, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so I am all for everyone getting involved, playing your part, and uh, making his name glorious. All right, a few bits of homework, and then we will stop and get the kids back in here. First one, join a good church that loves Jesus and teaches the Bible. If you had to boil down my criteria of a good church, they love Jesus and they teach the Bible, I think you're all right. Okay, get involved in a good church. Now, it could be this church if you're here. If you're new and you look around, I encourage you, get involved. If you think this is not the place for you for whatever reason, that's fine. Go and find one where you can and get stuck in. If you're a guest and you live somewhere else, find a, a church in your locality and get stuck in. And even if, if you could honestly say, hand on heart, you know, there isn't one in my locality, I put before you, do you need to move? God might have called you there for a different reason. If he hasn't, do you need to move so you are near one that you can be stuck in? So get involved in a good church. And if you're involved in a good church, get into the community of that church. Whatever system they've got set up, 
for connecting with people on a more personal level, some kind of small group system or you know, discipleship program, whatever it is, get in it so you're meeting people and you're getting kind of you're getting the, the, the teaching of the Bible actually into your life and it's being applied and worked out. Second thing, uh, do you know what your gifts are and are you using them? Do you know how God shaped you? Do you know some of the things that you can offer to those around you in the church, those around you kind of in the world, um, in serving kind of the body in growing it up? If you are, great, keep going. Don't quit. You know, enjoy how God's gifting you. Using it. If you're not sure... Um, I, my suggestion is start doing something. If it really doesn't work out, maybe that's not it. <laughs> and then you could try something else. If you go along to musos like I do, and I grab the guitar and try to do it, and they look at me like, you. this isn't for you. And they ask me gently to leave, you know, <laughs> go away. Then maybe that's not the best place for me. I'll find somewhere else to serve. Um, but I encourage you, find something, get going. And in the worst case, if you're really stumped, talk to someone and say, what can I get involved in? What can I have? There's lots of things we can be doing here. Lots of things we can be doing to serving those uh, around us. Um, and the last one is a book which I tried to find on my shelf today, but I, we had so many copies, I think we've given them all away. Um, but it's called Start by Terry Virgo, and it's just got a great section here. You don't have to read the whole thing, but it's got a great section on the gifts, and actually it could help you kind of, if you grab hold of that book, um, you can um, start exploring those things. Just If you're not sure on the understanding of them, that would be helpful. To, to, to look at and get your understanding and then start talking to people small groups come and grab me I'd love to talk to you um, but I think we're going to end there um, if I close in prayer you're going to go and tell the children that uh, we are done let me just close in prayer and then we'll um, Matt are you going to be coming Matt come and get themselves ready and we'll worship you together Lord Jesus I want to thank you for the church I want to thank you for it, the fact that it was your idea <laughs> I thank you that it is your bride and your purposes on the earth are being fulfilled through the church. Lord, I want to thank you for your gifts of grace that you've given to every single one of us. No one's missed out. Oh Lord God, I want to thank you that you are building your church and you have gifted us, gift us all differently, but yet we are all unified in one whole, one body. Lord, I thank you that everybody has their part to play, uh, whether it's visible or kind of invisible. Lord, we all have a part to play in working out, and our part is important and it is profound to the working of the whole. And I thank you, God, that you've designed it that way, that there are no superstars in your kingdom. There are no better or worse. We are all called to serve alongside one another and under you humbly. Um, God, I want to say, I love this idea of the church, Lord, and I thank you for the privilege of being part of uh, your church. Lord Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. 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 Thank you, man.